prepare ourselves this morning in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, the option of naming any unconfessed sins to God privately during silent prayer, which ensures the filling of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your grace, Your love, Your protection, Your provision. We thank You that You have given us everything necessary in order to fulfill Your great plan for us. However, we have to be plugged in. We have to have a desire to be part of that plan. And when we do, You provide all the rest. So we pray that You will help us to focus so that we can learn more today, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Fear is the great enemy of believers. For the rest of your life, you are going to be battling with fear. What you may be afraid of isn't necessarily what someone else is afraid of, but everyone is afraid of something. And so we have to address this head on, and God does not leave us without means to battle this nemesis. So you'll remember last Sunday we went over faith rest. This is a fundamental, basic doctrine that every believer needs to address. So if you will look up on the board, we'll take a quick look at that again. The first thing we do in faith rest is claim a promise. I'd say there's enough promises in the Bible for us, thousands of promises. You need to learn a few, the ones that you like the most, and claim a promise. Concentrate on doctrine using a rationale. In other words, this means that what you need to do once you've claimed the promise and you have become stable because you've hit the panic button and it's time for you to be able to address this issue in a stable, rational way, then you concentrate on doctrine using one of the rationales. We look at the essence of God rationale, that is His attributes that are found in a box. We call it the essence box. Uh, The young people, by the time they leave uh, Fabian's class in there, already know the essence box. They're very familiar with it. Logistical grace rationale. God is going to provide everything necessary for you to fulfill His plan. He is the perfect parent, and He gives us everything that we need. And then we have the plan of God rationale, which is actually, (coughs) we studied this a little more in depth Thursday night. Uh, There are seven imputations, and that seven imputations moves you right along from birth all the way into eternity. And that is God's uh, plan. Just uh, the, the short version is simply this. God is going to provide everything necessary for you to fulfill His plan. And then the third thing is that we apply the doctrinal rationale to the problem and enjoy the rest. I did a series years ago that <coughs> was uh, demonstrating that for every problem that we have, every challenge that we face, there is a doctrine that will address that particular issue. And so we are not left without the means of addressing the issues in life. Now I'd like everyone to turn in your Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. And we'll start at verse 15. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 15. This portion of Scripture makes the faith rest what we call a drill, a technique. Shows how it applies not only to Old Testament believers as they were facing 
unbelievable challenges, but they are pertinent for us today. And we are required by God's Word to utilize this biblical technique of gaining or maintaining your composure and stability. Hebrews 3.15 While it said today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart as when they provoke me. The they, as we will see, is referring to the Israelites. God showed His faithfulness over and over and over, and yet they still provoked Him by their Meribah, their chiding, their complaining, their lack of faith. Verse 16, For who provoked Him when they had heard? Indeed, did not, uh, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? Underline that, his rest. See, they didn't enter the land where they could acquire rest from all, from all sides. That didn't happen until the time of Solomon. But they could have had it, but they didn't. They didn't enter the rest because they didn't faith rest. But to those who were disobedient. Now, I want you to underline that word disobedient. That is unfortunate translation. This word pops up from time to time. And the Greek word there is apetheia. That is A-P-E-I-T-H-E-I-A. That would be apatheia. And it, it can be translated disobedience as it is here, but it's still it's unfortunate because when we see disobedience, what do we think of? We think of, well, we're not obeying the commandments, we're not being obedient to the Lord and that type of thing. But that's really not what it means because I'll give you the rest of the definition from the Complete Word Study Dictionary of the New Testament by Spiros Zodiades. And he says, It is an unwillingness to be persuaded, a willful, obstinate unbelief. So it's, it's disobedience in the sense of a very harsh, a very avid attitude of disbelief. In the New Testament, it corresponds with the verb apisteo. Now, pistuo is the verb form for faith or believe. And you put the alpha in front of it. That's the alpha negative, which means it's no belief. So it says in the New Testament, it corresponds in the use with the verb apisteo, which means not to believe disbelief or unbelief. Hence we have the sons of apatheos, disobedient unbelievers, heathen or pagan. So what we're looking at here, and what I did in my Bible was cross out disobedience and I just put in there unbelief or unbelieving, who were unbelieving. Are believed not. Put put a marker in your Bible right there for a moment, just for a moment, and turn to John three thirty six. John three thirty six. We find the same word again and again. It does damage with the way people understand this word disobedience because they think it doesn't have anything to do with unbelief. They think it has to do with not obeying the mandates of God. So in John 3.36 it says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not believe, and what I did was just cross that out and I put... (coughs) He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. That's a very 
important verse, and that word shows up again there. In the King James, it has, it has it translated, He who does not believe shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. They translated it the way I think it should be. I'm not saying that it's wrong to translate it disobedience, because it is, but it, if that's how you translate it, in these verses, the whole issue is belief, not being obedient. So we have that same word there as well as a few other places. Now turn back to Hebrews chapter 3. So the point I'm trying to make is they were disobedient, but what the Bible is making the issue here is they did not believe. In other words, they were not faith resting. They didn't mix the promises of God with their faith. That means they were being unbelieving Verse 19, and so we see that they were not able because of their, what does it say here? Unbelief. This word here is, uh, uh, is that other word that was, <coughs> excuse me, apistia, which just means not to believe. Actually, the disobedient, the apitho, is a stronger, it's an obstinate, very willful Unbelief. They refuse to believe. Now let me read those two verses again. Uh, you might have lost the flow in those, in, in the explanation of these words. Verse 18. To the one who, and to whom did he swear that they should not enter his rest, but to those who were unbelieving. And so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Now, chapter 4. Therefore, let us fear. Underline that. That's, that's very unusual in the Bible for it to tell us, therefore, let us fear something. The reason is because be not afraid is used 31 times and fear not is used 65 times in the Bible. So you have 65 times it says, fear not, and be not afraid 31 times, and now all of a sudden you have something altogether different. You, this is, uh, do, uh, therefore, let us fear. And, of course, the, the Greek word here is phobe, P-H-O-B-E. Phobeo, it's a verb. It has an uh, omicron on the end. Phobeo, let us fear. It's the aorist active subjunctive. It means maybe we will and maybe we won't. But it says, therefore, let us not fear, lest while a promise remains of entering his rest. What is that? Faith rest. So if you want to be afraid of something, don't be afraid of the challenge that, it, that you're facing. Be afraid of not faith resting. That's what this is saying. And this is in the New Testament. Faith rest isn't just for old believers. I mean, Old Testament believers. It's for us as well. Therefore, let us fear lest while a promise remains of entering his rest, and any one of you should seem to have come short of it. How do you come short of a promise? By failing to faith rest. You don't believe it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us. The good news there in context is referring to the gospel. We've had the gospel preached to us, just as they, talking about the Israelites also, but the word they heard, and this was after salvation, did not profit them because it, did not, it was not unified or united by faith in those who heard. So they had heard the word, they had heard the gospel first, and then they heard the promises. But it didn't, it didn't do them any good because uh, they did not unite what? Faith rests with the promise. You have to unite the faith with the promise, and then you get the result. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he said. See, enter the rest. I want you, every time I want you to see rest, I want you to underline it. And you might put little initials above it, capital F dash capital R. 
are just FR, faith rest. This is all talking about faith rest, what we were studying. For we who have believed, that is, believed the promises, enter that rest, just as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they, the Israelites, shall not enter my rest. They didn't enter the land because they didn't enter the rest first. When Christ, when God said, cross the river, take the land, and they refused to do it because they were what? Afraid. They didn't enter the rest, so they didn't enter the land. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. In other words, God's already got the solution. He was going to go before them. He promised he would, that he would, he would go before them as a flaming fire. And yet they didn't believe it. Verse 4. For he has thus said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. This is talking about Genesis 2-2, where the first Sabbath came along. By the way, when God created the heavens and the earth, or I should say at this point, when he restructured them, when he restored them in six days, what happened on the seventh? He rested. He didn't rest because he was tired. He rest, He rested to show them that they could rest in him because if he could rest, they certainly could rest. Verse 5. And again, in this passage, they shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had the good news preached to them and failed to enter because of, here it is again, disobedience. I'm reading from the, the New American Standard Version. Anybody have a King James out there? What does it say, Art? Does it say disobedience or does it say unbelief? Okay. Look at verse 6, probably the last, the last uh, word. Is it unbelief? It is? Okay. Yeah, see, the King James has the tr better translation, which is unbelief. It's just that every time you see disobedience, it throws it off of believing and on to uh, overt obedience and it's, not, it's, it's more talking it's talking the whole thing here is about faith rest and believing so if you have disobedience there cross it out and put because of unbelief because that's what the issue is that whole context of this is talking about not believing not faith resting verse 7 he again fixes a certain day today saying through david after so long a time just as has been said before today if you hear his voice do not harden your heart see what it's talking about is even a long time passed between the time of joshua and the time of david and even in david's time this faith rest was still being it was still functional and this is what the writer of hebrews is saying all this time it hasn't wore out god hadn't forgot it hasn't changed faith rest is still a functional technique even in the church age verse 8 for joshua had given them rest this means if they had demonstrated faith rest in if you're you, if you're reading a king james version you notice it doesn't say joshua does it what does it say it says jesus so if jesus had given them rest he would not have spoken of another day after that. There remains therefore a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest, underline that, that's, see when you enter his rest, that's God's rest. You're not unstable, you're not shaken, you're not afraid. Has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Now, this doesn't mean that we're not required to produce good works. We are. But it's talking about in context that we, we are not scrambling around. We are not frantically trying to do something and conniving and manipulating in order to save, solve our problem. All we're doing is saying, God, I have a problem. I can't handle it. I'm supposed to put it on you. And so... In 1 Peter 5, cast your burden upon him, for he cares for you. 
So you've done that, and now you're going to rest. You're no longer working at the issue, at the problem. You're resting. You're trusting God. Now, it's true that a lot of times we do have to do something. We just do whatever we can, but the rest isn't a physical rest. The rest is in your soul. It's all that static, all the clamor, all the clatter in your soul that makes you have it, you're in a state of unrest because you're not stable. You're, you're, not, you're not faith resting. And so in verse 11, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. I want you to underline that whole thing. We are to be diligent. Anybody got an idea what that Greek word there, diligent, is? <laughs> Our old friend, spudazo. You can't even say that in a lethargic way. I don't. I mean, spudazo. You've got to have some energy. You've got to pump it out there. And that's what it is. It's an aggressive, aggressiveness. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone through following the same examples of, there we have it again. It says disobedience, but that is what? Unbelief. It's all about not believing. In other words, we're not to follow the example of the Israelites who failed miserably. God was going to wipe them out altogether, and Moses interceded for them. And so he says, but they are not going into the land. They didn't trust me, and they're going to die in the desert. For 40 years they wandered. Even after seeing all of God's faithfulness. I want to ask you something. How does a believer, let me put it this way, what do you have to do to be diligent to enter his rest? What do you have to do? Yeah, I hear a lot of good answers out there. I hear take in doctrine, put it in his hands, pray. All those things are part of it. If your spiritual momentum is moving forward, one, one way you can tell the health of, or the vigor of your spiritual momentum is by your prayer life. Whenever you slack off on your prayer life, guess what happens to your spiritual momentum? It starts to grind to nearly a halt. So what we do is we keep on taking in doctrine. We keep on making sure that we're filled with the Holy Spirit that there's no unconfessed sins lurking about in our soul, and we are avid to take the promises. If you don't know promises, you don't have to go far. We've got a promise booklet back in the back. Take that booklet and start looking at some of the promises in there. You claim that promise, and you utilize that. That's how you are diligent to enter that rest. But it's our nature not to trust. Our nature is, well, I've got to handle it. Do you know why you have and why I have that attitude of, I've got to handle it? Do you know why? Because we're looking at the circumstances. And when we're looking at the circumstances and nothing's getting done, you faith rested, you've, you've poured out your soul to the Lord, and you think, okay, now I'm ready for the result. And you look at the circumstances, and what happens sometimes? They get worse. And that is the critical juncture because it's at that point that you think, well, if God's not going to do something, I've got to do something. In your own soul, in your own mind, you think, I'm going to take over now. And so you go out there and you start manipulating. You start conniving. You start prodding people and pushing here and bending here and doing everything you can to exert pressure wherever you think it needs to be in order to solve the problem. Is anyone here... Does anyone here relate to that? <laughs> I believe we all do, don't we? Half of the battle is when you're at that point to recognize you're slipping. That's where the critical juncture in the battle is. Is when you say, well, I've, <laughs> I've done what the pastor said. I've done what the Word of God said. I've given my problem to the Lord. And I'm trusting Him to take care of it. He will never leave me or forsake me. I know all that. But look at the problem. It's about to gobble me up. I've got to do something. In your soul, the only way that you're going to have true rest is whatever happens, 
when you're filled with the Holy Spirit and you're claiming this, whatever happens is God's will for me and it's for my good, so I'm not going to sweat it. You don't have control anyway. Whoever thought, whoever says you have control over anything? You have control over your own volition. Some of us like to think that we have control over our children. <laughs> well, I hope you do, but this is a major issue. I dare say before Christmas gets here that there will be maybe more than one engagement in your own soul where your faith resting and you're diligently trying to enter that rest, but you don't do it under your ambassadorship. You do it under your priesthood. Now, you'll see why I said that and why that's important in a moment because most people, most believers, church-age believers even, don't even, have, don't even know that they're priests. To them, a priest is a guy in a long robe and maybe a sash around his waist and he's, um, he goes around and carries a little pot of smoke and uh, does a lot of mumbo-jumbo type of thing. But to them, that's a priest. But a priest is someone who is a mediator, someone who can go to God. And in our age, every believer is a priest. So this function of faith rest is a function of your priesthood. Let me put it this way. We'll get to, to, to that priesthood in just a minute, but I want you to see this. This has to do with the kind of a bonus for the uh, faith rest drill. First of all, here's a promise, and this is given several times in the first chapter of Joshua. God is telling us, well, he told Joshua, but he's telling us as well, because this is given even in the New Testament. I will never fail you or forsake you. And there is not a person on this earth can make that promise and make it stick. Only God can say that. He has perfect character. He can't lie. It's impossible. So that promise, is in, promise encourages obedience. So the next thing we see, part of the obedience is not to turn from it to the right or to the left. The it is God's Word. It's the mandates of God. So we have this, this, this mandate from God. Don't turn from it to the right or the left. And I'll get back to that in a moment. There's another uh, parallel I want to make there. So our first thing is that we get a promise. We believe that God is going to fulfill His promise. And it encourages us to be obedient. And obedient pay, obedience pays off because then we become strong and courageous. Strong and courageous towards men, our circumstances. How many of you want to be strong and courageous in every field? All of us, right? Well, this is how you do it. You start with promises that stabilize you. You obey the Word. You don't turn from it to the right or the left. You're strong and courageous. And then the next thing is you know you're receiving blessings. Here's the promise. Have success wherever you go. You want to have success wherever you go? Where do you start? You start with God, don't you? You start in the spiritual realm. You start with your priesthood. We saw this last week, but you need to see it again. You can't remember this in just one shot. Your priesthood is the invisible part of, of, your, of the way you function as a believer. Your priesthood is the invisible part. It all starts with a desire. I have plus, plus vol there. That means positive volition. It means a desire or urge. To know what God has to say. God reveals Himself in His Word. Do you want to know His Word? Fine. He'll give you everything that you need in order to go as far as you want to go. But if you don't want to learn His Word, He doesn't pressure anyone. But the only problem is, is there is volitional responsibility. And if you don't learn His Word, 
you have to go to the school of hard knocks. Anyone, anyone ever been there before? So you have a desire to learn His Word, and when you learn His Word, as you are doing now, that creates confidence. Confidence is spiritual strength. What do you have confidence in? You have confidence in God and His Word, right? The Bible says that God is infallible. He cannot lie. He makes these promises. Do you understand how important these promises are? That gives you confidence and strength, and that is directed towards God. That is a part of your priesthood. You'll notice that this is a motivational virtue. It's invisible and private. Nobody knows what's going on in your soul between you and God. That's private. That's just between you and God. It's invisible. But what it does is motivate you. You know how important motivation is in the spiritual life? They, sometimes they may call it morale in the military. It's very important. And we need to have a high morale. We have to have a very uh, avid motivation. And it all starts by learning something about who and, God, who and what God is and having confidence in Him. Now, as a, as a corollary to this, we also have an ambassadorship. Let me give you a few verses that you can jot down, by the way, with regards to this priesthood. A couple of verses here that uh, let us know that we are priests. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession that you may proclaim the ex excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. 1 Peter Chapter 2, verse 9, you are a royal priesthood. Revelation, chapter 1, verse 6. And he has made us to be a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. A kingdom of priests. And that goes for you ladies also, which happens in no other dispensation, only ours. Why are the ladies priests in our dispensation? In the time in which we live, there's neither male nor female. There's neither a Jew or Greek. There's neither slave nor bond. We are all one in what? In Christ. So all you ladies, your, your priesthood works exactly the same way as the guys. And then the next thing you know, you have your ambassadorship. Here's a verse for you as far as your ambassadorship is concerned. We are royal ambassadors. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were entreating us, and we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We are ambassadors. Why do I say royal ambassadors? Because we are in Christ. Christ is royalty. We are in Him. We are royal ambassadors. So the motivation that we get from the priesthood side of our function as believers motivates our ambassadorship. It motivates us to have courage. We don't have courage towards God. We have courage towards men and circumstances. And that's called a functional virtue. And it's public or, or it is visible. When you go out and you witness to someone, whenever you're standing firm for doctrine... It means you have to move your mouth and there's actually sound coming out and people can hear and see that. So it's visible. And sometimes it's public. It's not always public. You might go to somebody's house and you're the only ones there. But your ambassadorship is functioning when you are giving them doctrine, whether it is the gospel or just doctrinal information. Okay, I'm going to go to something else. Y'all ready to clear the board? Okay. We're going to have go. Remember the, uh, the Scripture? Go back to Joshua now for a moment. What book of the Bible, what number book of the Bible is Joshua? Sixth. How do you know that? Because it comes after the Pentateuch. How many books are in the Pentateuch? Five. Who wrote the Pentateuch? 
Moses. And what are the books? Genesis, Ex- Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So the first book after the law, the Pentateuch, or the Torah, is Joshua. And if you look... <coughs> Look at verse 5, the end of verse 5. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Then he has the encouragement. Be strong and courageous, and you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Joshua gives it only in the sense that God is using him to be the military uh, leader. Verse 7, only be strong and very courageous, but listen to this, be careful, do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn. I want you to underline this part. Do not turn from it to the left or turn from it, excuse me, from the right or to the left. Underline that portion. And I'm going to give you a correlation here with how that relates to us today. Here is an overhead screen of the old sin nature. How many of you know about the old sin nature? I was going to ask how many of you have it. I might even be so bold as to say, how many of you don't have it? But I'm not going to ask that because I know somebody's hand's going to go up, and then I'm going to have to deal with that, so I won't ask it. Everybody has it. At the top, you see, it has an area of weakness that produces sin. But God's taking care of that. See, here's the sins. Can you all see that way back there, the red? Taking care of that on the cross according to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. And here that is. 1 Peter 2:24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you are healed. Now we know that Christ took care of the sin issue with regards to our condemnation. In other words, we know that it's impossible for a believer to be condemned because... He has been born again. He has eternal life. He has God's righteousness. He's a priest. He's an ambassador. He has all these things. This verse isn't talking about Christ's work on the cross with regards to relieving us from the penalty of sin. Did you see that in that verse? Look at it again. He himself bore our sins in his own body on the cross that we might, what, die to sin. The only way we can die to sin is have a power that believers, excuse me, unbelievers don't have. When we believe in Jesus Christ, we acquire a human spirit. Furthermore, we have now the option to be filled with the Holy Spirit, which means that the Holy Spirit's power works through us. Now we have something to battle sin in our life that we didn't have before which is the Holy Spirit. He himself bore our sins on the cross that he might die to sin so that we might live to righteousness and live to righteousness. So, God's taking care of the sin problem with regards to the penalty, which is eternal separation from God. That's not going to happen. By the way, It's impossible for us to be condemned. Where do you find that in the Bible as believers? If you don't know it, write it down. Romans 8.1. It is therefore Romans 8.1. Who knows that verse? There you go. Did you all hear that? There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are what? 
in Christ. In Christ Jesus. Okay. So the condemnation, condemnation factor is gone. The fact that we, before we believed in Jesus Christ, were totally dominated by our old sin nature, is, that, is, that is broken now. Now we have a power we didn't have before. The only thing that can be produced in the old, by the old sin nature is sin. And then down here we have what? Human good. Here's our area of weakness. Here's our area of strength here. Human good. And we have Isaiah 64, 6. For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like filthy, like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. This is the part that's important right here that I like to quote all the time. And all of our righteous deeds are like filthy garments. That's the good. That's not talking about sin. God sees our human good. By the way, what is human good? It's anything we produce in ourselves apart from God. God is not interested in your good. He's only interested in the good that you can produce that He gives you the power to produce through the filling of the Holy Spirit. Only a good that is produced by believers who are filled with the Holy Spirit is acceptable to God. This is another basic fundamental principle. And yet there are few believers that understand it. There are so many believers that are out there hustling. They're running around trying to do all these good deeds in order to impress God and they haven't gotten out of spiritual kindergarten and they still think that they can impress God by what they do. God is not impressed with anything that you do. He's only impressed with what He does and what He can do through you. Now, if you are a believer... You understand how to be spiritual. Once you sin, you get into carnality, and of course you acknowledge that sin to God and you're in spirituality. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. Then it's the Holy Spirit that empowers you to do this good. It's called divine good. That is what, he's, what he is impressed with. So when we're looking at this, the area of strength doesn't mean it's anything really it's good to us, but it's unacceptable to God. That's what we saw over here. Now I'm going to get to the part to where we, I'm going to relate it to Joshua, chapter 1, verse 7. What did God tell Joshua? Do not deviate to the right or to the left. Well, there's more to the OSN here, the old sin nature. It has a trend. It has a lascivious trend on the left. It has a legalistic trend on the right. Did you see what I labeled this? The left. Over here, the right. What are we not to do? Deviate to the left or to the right. And I don't know what your trend is. All of us have a trend. You may be a, a raucous hell raiser. This may be yours over here. You may be tempted not to, to raise hell. That might be your temptation. But a person over here whose strength or their trend is uh, legalism, well, the last thing they would do in the world is be a hell raiser. They don't even raise their voice. I mean, they are very pious. They're very uh, good. You'll see that in a minute. Let's look at it. The left, lascivious trend. Turning to the left is lasciviousness, licentiousness, antinomianism, and self-gratification. Antinomianism means it's against the norms. It's against the law. Licentiousness has more of a sexual content to it and self-gratification. All of us have the old sin nature, and I don't know how many in here, and I don't want to see any hands, or I don't want to even know. You don't need to tell anybody what trend you have. It's none of their business. They know you well enough, they know it anyway. And, uh, and uh, people that don't know it don't need to know it. But you need to know that you're not to turn to the left. So if you're a left-turner, then you have this trend of licentiousness, self-gratification, a trend towards lawlessness, lust, and unrestrained immorality. 
these are the ones that really get the get the most. Um, oh, how can I say that? The, they're easier to spot because this is, these are more overt type of sins. You know, hitting the hitting the bottle, um, cursing, uh, all these types of things. People notice that you can't fail to notice hardly. And a lot of these people that have this trend get the, the worst rap. Did you hear about so Oh, wait, yes, I saw them over there. And they just roll on and on about what they saw or what they heard or what someone even told them. It's all about the lasciviousness. You don't hear people gossiping about how good somebody is, do you? That's the other side. We'll get to that. Okay, for some of you, though, here's the right side. The right. Legalistic trend. If I ask you which one of these were the worst, depending on how much doctrine you have, most people, oh, well, this is the worst. This one includes fornication. That's got to be the worst. But it's not. It's the right. Turning to the right is legalism. You have asceticism, legalism, and works. And it's the feudal the futile attempt to earn acceptance or the approbation of God through morality or good works. Can you do that? No. And these, I don't have the negative side of this, but it is, let me go back to here for a moment. These are judging these. It's easy to do. But don't think that these aren't judging these. These may be calling these whoremongers. But these are calling these hypocrites. So which one is better? They're all in the same pot, aren't they? I mean, judging is judging. It's just different. The only thing, these over here, I think are a little bit harder to abide. Because a lot of people, I mean, if you are out there, if you're cursing and you're letting it all spew out, people hear it, there's no use in denying it, you are a cursor. If you frequent a bardello, it's going to get out and people are going to know there's no use. Or if you catch VD, whatever it is, there's a lot of ways that you're going to get caught over here and people are going to know. But people over here are more of the deniers. They are so proud that they're better than these over here that when you... in the Who did Christ have the, the harshest things to say about? These are these. These, wasn't it? I mean, He called them a brood of vipers. Whitewashed tombstones. Look nice on the outside, but full of dead men's bones. So when we're looking at Joshua... And the Lord told Joshua, you get into that word and you don't deviate to the left or the right. It hits us right in the heart, doesn't it? We cannot allow ourselves to deviate into whether it's lasciviousness or whether it's legalism. We have to stay right on course. And when we do, we have the promise of success. And I'd love to go into success. All, this, all that I've given you this morning so far was an introduction to my notes for today that I didn't even get to. But there are some great notes, let me tell you. Not because I did them, but because they came from the Word of God. Are y'all going to try, try to stay on course? Well, I hope so. How many of you are going to do it 100%? <laughs> Please, no hands go up. <laughs> How many are going to try? Okay. Well, God gives us a lot of help. He gives us His own power and His own Word that He will never leave us, He'll never forsake us, He'll never fail us. What a great God we have. 
I think this month you're going to have more opportunity to remember not to deviate to the left or to the right than any other month. The reason is because of people. There's people in stores. There's people in sports arenas. There are people in houses, your neighbors. Family members are people. And there's people even in church. Let's bow our heads. This portion of this service is dedicated to anyone who is not sure what's going to happen after they die. They may be afraid that they might wind up in hell. They might be afraid that they're going to wind up nowhere, that they just cease to exist. God doesn't want any of us to be afraid. The way to conquer your fear, the first thing to do to start to conquer fear as an unbeliever is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So many things happen at that point that God does for you that you no longer have to fear ever again. You can know for certain where you're going after you die, which is to be with the Lord Jesus Christ because Christ died for your sins. He's the Son of God. He was buried and rose from the grave and now offers eternal life to anyone who will trust Him and Him alone for it. And you can do it now in a moment. You don't have to do anything other than believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved in that moment. And then the issue is to grow in grace and knowledge. Now, Father, we pray that you will help us during this Christmas season not only to remember what Jesus Christ did as He came to earth in the incarnation to become a man, but what He did for us on the cross. He broke the back of the old sin nature for those who believe in Him. And we pray that You will help us to fulfill that desire that we have not to deviate from the, to the left or to the right, that we will stay the course. And we pray this in Christ's most high and holy name. Amen.